Uh, this morning, we're going to kick off a series, and because you're here, you'll be right in step with it. Everybody else won't have a clue in the weeks coming what we're doing, but we're going to kick it off. It's, it's the book of Jonah. It's an Old Testament book. It's really, honestly, one of the most interesting books in all the Bible. Can you even say that? They're all supposed to be super interesting, but, but this one's like double super interesting. And uh, we're going to read the first chapter this morning before we dive into the particulars. So this is the word of God. This is the minor prophet, the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fee, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Lot of things going on in this whole book and uh, particularly in this whole chapter. So before we dive in, let's pray. Father, would you be our teacher this morning? We thank you that we can gather and we can sing your praises. We can worship you and in that process too, open your word and reflect on it together. And so we need you to give us understanding to to challenge us and just kind of tweak us where we need to be tweaked, where we need to listen, uh, where we need to hear from you. Father, let us learn about you and about us as we learn about Jonah. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city. You're going to want to remember that word great because it comes up again and again and again in significant ways in this book. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah was a prophet. Obviously, he was not a priest. Uh, you understand priests were those who served in a temple, who made sacrifices, who did various things in and around the temple. They would lead worship and so. A prophet was a very different Old Testament character. A prophet was a reformer. A prophet was sometimes an activist for change. Uh, a prophet was sometimes a lawyer, so to speak. Uh, and the people often viewed prophets as troublemakers of sorts. They were always preaching against the sins of God's people, prosecuting, if you will, God's case against them or some neighboring nation on occasion, the Moabites, the Amorites, the uh, Phoenicians, whoever, the Babylonians uh, at one point, the Assyrians at another. Now, Israel always had a lot of priests who ministered at the temple, but generally just a few prophets at a time were active. Because uh, on the one hand, that was all Israel needed. But for, on the other hand, it was probably all they could stand. You know, uh, people pointing out their, their sins and where they needed to repent. And so one day the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Jonah. Life is not always easy when you're a prophet. God's word comes to Jonah and says, go, go to Nineveh. And these three words are going to change Jonah's life. Uh, beyond his imagination. Go to Nineveh. Uh, this is a rather unusual call for Jonah to receive because he was, after all, a prophet to Israel. Ordinarily, he had nothing to do with other countries. This happens to be a time in Israel's history, too, when it's really prospering, economically prospering. It's adding territory. This is under King Jeroboam II. Uh, this is uh, this is. Jonah ministering the word of God to the people of God in a time where the people perceive themselves to be prospering. However, God sees it very differently. And so Jonah's primary ministry was to Israel, not to other countries where they didn't have a temple dedicated to Jehovah. They didn't worship Jehovah God. They didn't even know Jehovah God. But the word comes to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. And it's very striking how it's expressed because it's not go to Nineveh and preach to it. It's go to Nineveh and preach. You probably noticed this, preach against it, right? Uh, that's what the text says. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach against it. And that's kind of a daunting task if you think about it because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at that time. And in the 7th and 8th centuries B.C., Assyria was a great world power and actually expanding its borders constantly. It would chew up and then spit out one country, one people, uh, one group after another. One historian writes these words about Assyria. Assyria is one of the cruelest, most violent empires uh, in ancient times. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would often cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. That's not funny. Wow. They forced friends and family members to parade with decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so that they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. 
They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been noted to be a terrorist state, he writes. When the nation Israel divided, some of you know about this part of Israel's history, you know, 10 tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, roughly. There was a northern, there was a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, they were captured in 722 B.C. by these Assyrians. And basically, they were vaporized. They were obliterated. Uh, The population of Israel was taken up and moved out of the area. They became slaves. The few who remained in in the area intermarried. It was the end, really, of those 10 northern tribes. Now, you can imagine how much Assyria was hated by uh, Israelites as they watched Assyria become more and more powerful. Because what's taking place in the story of Jonah is almost certainly before uh, the northern tribes were taken captive by Assyria. This will give you some idea. This is the prophet Nahum. And this is what Nahum had to say about Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. He writes in Nahum chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to the city of blood. He's talking about Nineveh. Full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. And then Nahum, in a few verses later, down in verse 19, says this, your injury is fatal. It's talking about an injury that God is going to give to Nineveh. And it says, your injury is fatal. You're going to die. Everyone who hears the news about you claps their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? So you get the idea. (laughs) Nineveh is a hated city. It's a city that's not just cruel. It is endlessly cruel. And when it is destroyed, Nahum says, people are going to (laughs) clap. There'll be a celebration. Finally, finally, that city has fallen. And if you want to understand kind of how the Israelites felt about Nineveh as they watched Nineveh and as they watched the Assyrian Empire grow, you can think of sort of how we look back on Nazi Germany or how we might look at North Korea or Stalinist Russia or Mao Zedong's China. It was a terrorist state. Now, Nahum said very, very strong condemning words about Nineveh, but guess where Nahum got to say those words? Not at not in the city of Nineveh. He was in Israel. He was a long, long way from Nineveh. But the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. Tell them face to face that they are going to be facing my judgment. That's the message Jonah gets to deliver. I'm I'm just guessing. I don't know this, but I'm guessing Jonah thought, "Uh, Lord, Couldn't I just kind of do what Nahum did? I mean, you know, uh, why do I need to travel? Why do I need to go there? I'd, I'd be happy to condemn them from here. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to Nineveh. Now, how did the word of the Lord come to Jonah? We're not really told that. We're not given that information. Uh, was it a burning bush? Was it a still small voice? Uh, Was it an angel? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? What was it exactly? Was there room for doubt? Was when Jonah heard the message, was there some space for him to go? Was that God or was that someone else? I mean, what exactly uh, were the circumstances? We, we, We don't know. The text doesn't say. It just says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to Nineveh. 
Nineveh was not in Jonah's comfort zone. <laughs> Nineveh is a place that God tells you um, to go where you do not want to go. Nineveh is trouble. Nineveh is danger. Nineveh is fear. Nineveh doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And yet, truth be told, God calls in a way all of us to a Nineveh of sorts at times, does he not? He calls us to obedience. He calls us to speak truth. He calls us to circumstances we don't understand. He calls us to places or to people or to circumstances that we don't want to face. Maybe we don't really want to deal with. And when he does that, we are inclined to run, aren't we? (laughs) A lot like Jonah. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah does get up and go. He just doesn't go to Nineveh. Nineveh was north and east. Jonah heads for Tarshish, which is directly west, probably on the east coast of what today we call Spain, as far west in the Mediterranean world as you could possibly go. That's that's where Jonah's headed. The text says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Jonah, the prophet, the man of God, runs away from God. What a stupid, stupid thing to do. I mean, who would ever do something stupid like that, trying to run from God? Just an observation here. One of the things about disobedience, one of the things about sin is that it requires the illusion that I can run from God, that I can sin and not get caught. Anybody here ever labored under the illusion that you could sin and not get caught? The idea that when you sin, there will be no price to pay. There'll be no consequences associated with my disobedience to God. I wonder, anybody here ever steal something? Anybody here ever lie to get ahead or lie for personal gain? Anybody here ever take credit for something you didn't actually do or cheat on your taxes or cheat on a test or an exam or cheat on a spouse or a friend? Now, here's the really dark, dark truth. Because to everything I just said, at one level or another, we, we, we could all raise our hands. I noticed none of you did. <laughs> but here's the really dark truth about us. The sin in us makes us really more embarrassed and ashamed about getting caught, about others knowing what we did, than about the fact that we're breaking the law of God. More embarrassed, more ashamed about, you know, others finding out than about disobeying God or dishonoring God or disappointing God. And in the mix in all of this is is just frankly caring a lot more about me, my image, my power, my glory, my agenda, my comfort, my pleasure, my will than I care about God's. 
So if I want to disobey God, I have got to find a way to eliminate the awareness of God's presence in my life. Uh, I've got to find a way to dampen down that truth that God is always with me and will never leave or forsake me. I've got to eliminate the awareness of God's character, the awareness that I have of God's will, the awareness of his holiness, the awareness of God's love for me, his sacrificial love, my awareness of God's mercy and God's goodness and God's grace. I I have to get my mind thinking about other stuff so that I don't think about that stuff, so that I don't think about truth. So if I want to do something wrong, it always involves running away from the Lord in one form or another. And sadly, we all do this all too often. It happens to everybody in this room and even more so to those who aren't here in this room with us. (laughs) Friends, God asks us to go to Nineveh, so to speak. To do something we don't want to do. Like studying instead of cheating, for example. That's, he would ask us to do that. Or, or like uh, purchasing something instead of stealing it. Or like telling the truth instead of telling a lie. Or like reconciling with someone instead of just harboring bitterness and anger and resentment toward them. Or like living generously with the things that God has given us versus, you know, grabbing, holding, hoarding, and spending those things just on me. He'll ask us to do things like love our neighbor, even if our neighbor is somebody different than us. He'll ask us to share our faith with boldness when we're frankly afraid to do that. And what we do oftentimes when we get asked to do these kinds of things, oh, we get up and go. But not to Nineveh. We, We head to Tarshish. And that's what Jonah does. He, he thought, as do all of us, he could run from God. Nobody will ever know. <laughs> and then a book gets written about it. <laughs> and so he goes down to Joppa, which is a port city. And there he finds a ship that's headed for Tarshish. And after paying the fare, he gets on board and sails for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Just a little detail here I think it's worth noting. And that is that Jonah pays for the fare. He's not a stowaway. This is actually kind of a big deal. Few people ever traveled far from home in those days. Why? It was dangerous. Why? It was costly. To get on a ship costs a great deal of money. But Jonah had money enough to buy passage for the long voyage out of his own pocket. He had what a lot of people didn't have. He had some available money. He had mobility. He had options. And I say this just to illustrate one of the dangerous things about money. Money's not bad. And if you've got a lot of it, great. I'm happy for you. But money can be good or it can be bad. Having money makes it easier to think that you can run away from God because you've got options, don't you? I mean, you can do things, you can buy things, you can pursue things that keep God way, way out of sight and out of mind. And Jonah gets on a ship headed for Tarshish. And he can do that because he's got some money. Now, you need to know also, this is not just random geographical information we're being given here. Tarshish is actually a very significant uh, place, uh, not, not just because it's in the opposite direction of Nineveh, but because in many ways it was the opposite kind of city from uh, Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was in fact a military power. Tarshish was in fact an economic power. It was a wealthy city of trade. 
Kind of what we talked today about Wall Street. It was that kind of city. It made money carrying goods all around the Mediterranean world. It was a city full of greed. It was a city full of arrogance. It was a very proud city. The phrase, a ship of Tarshish, became a symbol of wealth in the ancient world. It actually comes up a number of times in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter uh, 2, we read this. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. For all that is exalted and they will be humbled for every trading ship and every stately vessel. Literally, literally every stately vessel literally is every ship of Tarshish. It was a synonym. It says the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The prophet Ezekiel says something similar in Ezekiel 27. He's talking about the city of Tyre that's going to be judged. And he describes the city of Tyre this way. He says, Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth and goods, wealth of goods. They exchanged silver, iron, tin, and lead for your merchandise. You see, ships of Tarshish were a known commodity in the ancient world. They were significant. They were synonymous with wealth and self-sufficiency and power and greed. And that's where Jonah is going. Not just any random city, he's going to Tarshish. Can you imagine that there was once a group of human beings so incredibly deluded, they thought that wealth could make them powerful. They thought that wealth could make them secure. They thought that wealth could protect them. They thought that wealth could make them happy. Unbelievable, isn't it? How stupid they were. Who would ever think that? Well, that's where Jonah's going. Jonah gets on a ship to Tarshish. And he thinks he's running towards safety and opportunity and security while at the same time running away from God. But here's the deal. Maybe what looks, like, what looks safe from a human perspective is really not actually safe at all. Just maybe. Maybe the only real safe place is to be in the will of God in your life even if the will of God takes you to Nineveh. Even if God's will is a scary place that you, you don't really want to go there, maybe Nineveh is actually the really safe place. So we read in verse four, it says, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And there's that word again, great, a great wind. It's the same word that described the great city. Of Nineveh. But now it's God doing great things, you see, sending a great wind that stirs up a violent, violent storm, tempest. And the sailors we read were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now, this is a very, very, very serious situation. This is like uh, riding out a storm on a ship in a Category 5 hurricane. How do we know this? Well, for starters, these are professional sailors. Uh, they have been in many, many storms, we could safely 
assume. They don't quickly or readily panic, but they're panicking now. In fact, they are so afraid, they take their cargo, that's their treasure, that's what makes this voyage financially successful for them. Uh, There was almost certainly great wealth on this ship, that would have been very typical, but now they are pitching that wealth, that treasure overboard. That's how bad this storm is. And did you notice what else they're doing? Each one cried out to his own God. You see, outside of Israel, out in, in the ancient world, uh, it, it was not uh, generally an accepted idea, the idea of monotheism. Only one true, great, living, almighty God. Uh, more often than not, the general populace uh, of, that, of that time thought more in terms of tribal gods or regional gods. Uh, each region, each tribe, each group, each city, each empire had a stable of gods to whom they would pray and turn for specific situations. There were even certain gods for certain guilds. Sailors had their own god to whom they would pray for protection and for profit. And you can bet these sailors are praying to that god at this particular moment. Now, what's interesting is their gods to whom they are praying, what kind of job are those gods doing right now? Not good. They're not helping. Their gods really aren't noticing their present predicament. Now, at this point, what is Jonah doing? He's sleeping. This is another way to run away from God. (laughs) He is sleeping down in the hold in the boat. He doesn't care about this boat. He doesn't care about these Gentile sailors, just like he doesn't care about Ninevites. And that's why he's not praying. He's sleeping. And the captain can't believe it. And he comes down to Jonah and he says, how can you sleep? Verse six, how can you sleep? What are you thinking? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Now there's incredible irony here in this first chapter, just incredible irony. It's part of what makes this story so interesting. One of the ironies in this story is that a pagan or Gentile ship captain is calling the man of God to pray. The pagan is doing what the prophet should have been doing, calling on everyone to pray. The prophet is doing what the pagans normally do. They're sleeping when it's time to pray. Some of you are very near or very close to being a pagan right now. You're falling asleep. God is up to something, friends. One of my favorite sayings. God is up to something right here in this chapter that we're reading. Something really interesting, something involving Gentiles of all things. Something Jonah the Jew wants no part of. There's a whole lot of ethnic arrogance. It's just dripping from this text. And because Jonah finds his identity more in the fact that he's a Hebrew than he does in the character and the heart of his God. Uh, This means that Jonah doesn't care about people who are not his people. This is a big part of the story. It's a repeating theme. We'll come up against it in the weeks ahead. Uh, Jonah is doing absolutely nothing at this point precisely because he does not care about anyone but himself and his own people. And the sailors at this point, they cast lots as a way of trying to figure out what on earth is going on, which was a very common practice 
It was common in Israel. It was also common in other places and among other peoples. And the lots indicate that the problem is Jonah. And so the sailors ask him, what is your story? That's literally, what is your story? And Jonah answers, I am a Hebrew. You see, that's his number one identifier. The order here of how he identifies himself is significant. First and foremost, I'm of my tribe, my people, the chosen people, the special people. We've got a covenant with Almighty God. We are favored. You are not. I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified the sailors even more. Literally, it says, and the people feared a great fear. There's that word again. And in this context, this specific context, it's, it's interestingly ambiguous. Great could mean a really large fear that they, uh, they had, or it could mean a redemptive fear. Uh, not entirely clear what it means, but they feared a great fear. Not any old everyday fear. This was a great fear. And they asked them, what have you done? Verse 10. And then we have this very significant parenthetical insertion. It says, they knew he was running away from the Lord. I don't know if when he bought his ticket, hi, I need a ticket to Tarshish. I'm running away from the Lord. Or I don't know what they said, what he said exactly, but they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So they had had some conversation. Now, this parenthesis is significant. Something interesting and very wonderful is actually happening here. The sailors, you see, had been praying to their tribal gods already each to their own Elohim. That's the word Elohim, God. And then they ask Jonah what's going on. And Jonah replies back to them. This is verse nine. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship not just any old Elohim. He doesn't use that word God, Elohim. He says, I worship Yahweh. That is God's true Name. I am who I am. I am who I will be. This is the God who wants to be known, who reveals himself and is revealing himself right here, right now, through wind and through storm and through a reluctant, recalcitrant prophet. Jonah tells them, he says, this God is the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. So he is Yahweh. He is Jehovah God. That, that is his name. And this is the God who made the sea and the land. And that is some pretty important information for their particular predicament, wouldn't you say? The sailors, they start to figure it out real fast. They're not dumb. This Yahweh is not a tribal God, not an Elohim. He's more than that. He doesn't just work in Israel. Because he's working right now, right where they are in that sea, in that ocean. This is the God who created the seas and the land. And the next thing you know, they are fearing God with a great fear. The point is this, I think. These sailors are actually coming to believe in, coming to know Jonah's great God on this ship of Tarshish in the middle of this great storm that this great God has caused. And I'll tell you something else that I think is amazing about this story. If Jonah had come to them in all of his ethnic pride, hey, I'm here, I'm the Hebrew prophet, men of Tarshish, I want you to know my God is bigger than your God. My God is better than your gods. He's the supreme being. They would most likely have dismissed what he had to say because it would have felt like it was just about ethnic tribal superiority or rivalry of some sort, pride all over it. 
But instead, Jonah comes to them not saying really much at all about God, uh, at least very little. Uh, He's kept them mostly in the dark about who he is, about what business he is up to until now. Until they ask him, what is your story? And he has to answer. And one of the reasons that Jonah, uh, that they are going to believe Jonah, humanly speaking, I think, is that he comes to them as a total screw up. He's a knucklehead. He's a man of God running from God. And again, ironically, he had been a prophet all these years. He only cared about Hebrews, not Gentiles, but his God, unfortunately or fortunately, cares about Hebrews and Gentiles. And his God uses this runaway prophet to bring the good news about God to a bunch of Gentile sailors on a ship from Tarshish right here in the middle of the sea in the middle of a storm. And I can't help but notice that it is the circumstance of Jonah's complete failure that God uses to bring these people, that's the context, to bring these people to faith. Whatever else this book is, it is not a story about a human plan. It's about God being up to something that Jonah could never, ever, ever have imagined. Using him, using Jonah in ways that overcame all of his weaknesses, even all of his sin. It had nothing to do with Jonah's strengths or Jonah's abilities or Jonah's wants or desires. This is so like God. He reveals his power. He reveals his wisdom. He reveals his mercy through our weakness, our foolishness oftentimes, even in spite of our sin. Our sin cannot stop God's plan. It will not thwart God's purposes. It never will. Well, (laughs) the sea keeps raging and the storm gets worse. And the sailors ask Jonah in verse 11, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? They're at a loss. They're kind of trying to find out how this God, this new God they found out about, the God who's supremely in command, the God who is noticing them when their gods aren't noticing them, what, what should we do? And Jonah says, well, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault. Jonah, for the first time, starts to own his own sin a little bit. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So here he is. He's even starting to care, or so it seems. Just a little bit for someone other than himself and someone other than his own people. The solution he comes up with, of course, means his death. But the sailors aren't okay with that, and so they don't just pitch him in the drink. Again, they are showing more mercy, more maturity, more grace, more concern for others than God's prophet has so far. And they don't want to sacrifice Jonah. And so verse 13 says, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Their lives are at stake, but they don't want to sacrifice the life of this Hebrew stranger who's on the run from God. It's amazing. What what are we reading when we read this story? Well, we're reading the Bible. What is the Bible? Well, this part of it, this is the Hebrew scriptures, right? Right? We're reading the Hebrew scriptures after all. And it's telling us that Tarshish sailors are doing better than a Hebrew prophet. You think there's any irony in that at all? Again and again and again, these Tarshish sailors have more compassion, more humility, more basic human decency than the Hebrew prophet does. 
This, this whole book is actually very similar to a story that Jesus tells in the New Testament. Uh, the Good Samaritan, where somebody outshines a priest, a Levite, you know, some Samaritan outshine. Well, okay, there's some real similarities going on here. This is God's prophet running away from God, not caring about Tarshish sailors, not caring about Ninevites. Part of what the writer is telling us is that you have to be real careful about judging who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, who's moving toward God, who's moving from or away from God. The lesson of Jonah is clear, at least one of them. There is no room for pride or arrogance or a spirit of superiority. You know what? We in here are better than they out there. Or as the pastor's been saying, those of us who came to church this morning are better than those who didn't. Don't listen to that. There's no room for exclusivity. There's no room for judgmentalism among the people of God. God can and will work in whomever he wishes and how he works is always the same. It's always the same. It's always in people who don't deserve his love, don't deserve his mercy, don't deserve his forgiveness, don't deserve his grace, whether it's an Israelite or a sailor from Tarshish or a Ninevite. And so these sailors of Tarshish are trying to row the boat back to shore, but the storm is too strong, so they say a prayer. And now they, they had already been praying, remember, to each to their own gods earlier on. Uh, that's all they knew to do then, but notice who they pray to now. This is verse 14. Then they cried out to the Lord. That word is Yahweh, not Elohim, Yahweh. Oh, Lord, that's Yahweh again. Please do not let us die for, make, for taking this man's life. Do not, let us, do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, Yahweh, have done as you please. What, what they're saying is by, by using this name of God in this context, they're saying, God, you, you are sovereign. God, you reign. You're in control. You are the God of land and sea. You, you've got this whole thing uh, in control completely. And three times they mention his name, his personal name, Yahweh. The writer is telling us that these Gentile sailors now know the one true God, I think, Yahweh himself. The God of Israel has made himself known to Gentile sailors from Tarshish. And at this point, they, they take Jonah to the side of the boat. Now, just try imagining this moment, if you will. There's a great storm. There's terrified sailors. There's a runaway prophet. There's a capsizing boat. Don't you wonder what's going on in Jonah's mind? He's got to be thinking, okay, this is it. I mean, I am going to die. I'm sure no, the idea of a large fish swallowing him has not even entered his head, right? Now, in fact, this may be Jonah sacrificing himself for the safety of these sailors. It could be that. It's hard to tell. It could also be Jonah deciding that the only thing that he can do to successfully run from God is die. We don't know exactly Jonah's mindset here. It could be either. It could be both. Either way, it's into the sea Jonah goes. And on deck for all the sailors, all of a sudden, everything is calm. The storm is gone. Immediately, they enter into a God-given calm and peace. And here's the deal, friends. 
Uh, they've come to know the one true living God. They bow their knees to him and they become worshipers. The storm is calm, verse 16, and it says, At this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. That's an act of worship. That's an act of gratitude. And it goes on to say, and they made vows to him. That's an act of commitment, an act of devotion. There's every reason to believe here. These men have discovered who the one true living God actually is, and it's Yahweh. And this is unbelievable. A pagan boat becomes a place of worship. And let me tell you, that wasn't Jonah's plan. What Jonah didn't want Gentiles to receive, God's mercy, has already begun to happen. And it happens in part because of Jonah's personal sacrifice. There's so many things and so many layers of of things going on in this book. I I can't pursue them all unless you want me to. No, I'll take that. Okay. See, it turns out these sailors on this ship, they are not just bit players in this story uh, at all. This is not some little throwaway thing in a story that's really about Nineveh. It turns out that God's story is so big, it's a multifaceted thing. Guess what? God's story about your life is a multifaceted thing as well. You see, God's story here is about Tarshish, it's about Nineveh, and it's about a runaway prophet whose heart has got to change. And all of this is going on at the same time. It turns out that Jonah thought he was running away from God. Jonah thought he would thwart what God wanted to do. He was going to stop God's plan. Turns out that God is at work in ways that Jonah cannot even begin to imagine. It turns out that this story is about an amazing God willing to show amazing grace and do amazing things in the midst of amazing circumstances that at the time made no sense at all. And isn't that exactly what God does and did in Jesus? I know I need to end this, amen. In Matthew 16 and in Luke 11, Jesus uses this phrase that's so interesting. He talks about the sign of Jonah. And in both of those instances, the context is people wanting Jesus to show them a miraculous sign to prove that he's come from God, to prove that he is the Messiah, that he sent from God. And Jesus says this, he says, this is Luke 11. He says, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign. And by the way, he'd been doing one miraculous sign after another, but he said, it asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now there's debate about what Jesus meant, the sign of Jonah. But in part, at least, the sign of Jonah means at least two things. It probably means more, but it means at least these two things. First, Jonah calling the Ninevites to repentance. Jonah was a prophet sent, and he was to go proclaim the judgment of God because of the sin of the Ninevites, and he was going to preach repentance to them. So part of the sign of Jonah is part of what Jesus did. He was telling people, repent of your sins and come follow me. That's part of what the sign of Jonah is, is probably referring to but there's a second part this sign has something to do with the sacrifice of one's self for others which Jonah did by hopping in the drink right and Jesus does by dying on a cross and going into the tomb but Jesus doesn't just die the sign of Joseph uh, Jonah also had to do with not staying dead Jonah disappeared down into the depths, surely to die. It was certain death had God not showed up. 
But then Jonah, a few days later, shows up alive again. And Jesus did the same. Three days in the grave, then back to life he came. And what resulted in both Jonah's case and Jesus was salvation. In Jonah's case, salvation for Tarshish sailors. Salvation for the city, a great city of Nineveh. And neither of whom deserve saving. Neither of whom were even asking to be saved. God just graciously saved them. And in Jesus' case, salvation occurs for all of God's people, past, present, future, Jew, Gentile alike. Again, none of whom deserve saving. None of whom were asking Jesus to die on a cross. Tim Keller has a, a statement about this that's really interesting to me. Admit you could make a sermon out of this um, and all the implications uh, alone. So I'll do that right now. This is what he says. He says, and that is the problem facing Jonah, namely the mystery of God's mercy. It's a theological problem, but it is at the same time a heart problem. Well, for who? Well, for Jonah. How can God be merciful to evil people? And for us, how can God be merciful to people I don't like? You see, it's a theological problem, but it is at the same time a heart problem. Unless Jonah can see his own sin, which he's just beginning to see. Unless Jonah can see his own sin and see himself as living wholly by the mercy of God, he will never understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful. And that really is the crux of the book of Jonah. This Hebrew prophet who thought on many levels he deserved the mercy of God. The Hebrew people deserved the mercy of God. No, they don't. No, we don't. You see, on this table right here is actually the answer to, you know, how can God be merciful and how can God be just at the same time? Jesus is the answer to that question. Jesus died for evil people, not for people who think they're good. Because if you think you're good, you don't get it. If you think you're good, you're walking in Jonah's sandals. You see, Jesus died for evil people. He went into the grave. He appeared alive three days later, giving salvation to sinners who believe in him. Sinners who don't deserve his mercy. It's the sign of Jonah. And again, it's, it's what's on this table. Jesus gives us this sign. So that we'll remember this sacrament so that we'll remember. Remember his death, his sacrifice until he returns. He's alive. He's not dead. He's not dead. In the upper room, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You could even say, and you wouldn't be stretching it too far, I don't think, that this sacrament is an extension of what Jesus referred to in Luke 11 and in Matthew 16, it, at the sign of Jonah. That a sacrifice would happen, that a payment would be made so that others could be spared and others could be saved. But the one who sacrificed himself doesn't stay dead, comes back from the dead. Now, Jonah was but a pale, uh, pale type of what Jesus would do. Jesus, of course, is the real thing. 
And we invite you to partake of this meal if you know Jesus. In the upper room, Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so if your faith is in Jesus, if your trust is in Jesus, if you know that you are in fact a sinner deserving God's punishment, deserving his judgment and his wrath, but in fact because of what Jesus has done for you, the justice of God has been satisfied. So that we can be recipients of God's mercy. If you know that, you're invited to this table and invited to participate If you don't, we would encourage you to hold off. Settle the issue of who Jesus is in your heart and in your mind. And we'd love to help you do that.